0: Our text this week is from Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. So if you could please turn there now. And although it is a while since we've been here, I hope that you recall that this section sits in the book rather like a a thing in brackets, an additional thought that Paul had as he was going along. And although it looks like that, it definitely doesn't mean that we should dismiss it as an afterthought, because as we shall most emphatically see, it contains very stirring and wonderful truth. Now we only had time to look at the first part, the last time, so this week we will finish the chapter up, reading from Ephesians 3 then, verses 8 to 13. according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Don't you think Paul is being a bit hard on himself here, writing like this, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints? Most of you will know that I have a little business fixing and building all kinds of things. Now, if you had employed me for some project or another and it was successfully completed, you might come and make some congratulatory comments about the work. At this point, I would probably look a little bit sheepish and mumble something like, oh, you're welcome, or I'm glad you like it. Actually, I really, really want to agree with you and encourage you to greater heights of praise. (laughs) That's very honest. But in the good Anglo-Saxon tradition, it's not the done thing to boast, is it? This response is deeply ingrained in all of us, such that when we read Paul's comments here about being the least of all the saints, we may automatically think that he is doing the same thing. After all, we know that he was a great man who accomplished many fantastic things. Surely he wouldn't be boasting about them. To understand what's happening here, let's try to work this through logically. Well, first of all, Paul clearly knew who he was, as we read in Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. No misconceptions there. Paul clearly knew exactly who he was, and he wasn't shy to describe it when he had to. But, he did carry with him a great burden, and I suspect great shame, at his violent and rigorous persecution of the church as a younger man. And we see echoes of his words here in Ephesians, written later in 1 Corinthians, along with that link to that earlier behaviour. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. Now that might seem like a good reason for Paul to be making a poor account of himself. And while it is a valid reason, I believe that the real root Paul has for this humble attitude is actually because he has a very clear appreciation of Jesus' might and glory relative to his own sin and uselessness to God in that condition. He's creating a powerful picture of contrasts for the reader. Any students of English here, have you heard of the, um, the term hyperbole? Yes, okay. So you'll know that it sounds flash, but it just describes something that all of us do very regularly, which is to deliberately exaggerate the situation to make it sound more exciting. Here's an example. I caught millions of fish the other day. Well, did you? They must have been very tiny, otherwise you would have sunk the boat. Of course, I didn't really catch millions of fish. It's just a figure of speech. Is that what Paul's doing here, exaggerating for the sake of emphasis? Actually, no, because he is starting to draw a very accurate and factual picture of the real gulf that exists between sinful man and righteous God. And Starting at the man end, Paul is being very emphatic about his leaceness. The Greek used, says something like, incomparably the least of all the saints. Or something like, who am not worthy to be reckoned among the saints. In fact, he wanted to make the low so low that he even invented a new word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And I'm going to try and say it. Okay? He actually made that up because he wanted to really be sure that people knew what he was talking about, the least of the least, or far least than the least. Where does that put us today? Nothing has changed. We share these qualifying conditions with Paul. Most of us drag some kind of emotional or spiritual burden around with us, and, and we're all sinners. We have no grounds on which to boast. We are the least of the least. And how do we usually try to deal with the situation? There's a few ways. We could pretend to ignore our problems and press on regardless. But in reality, that's like trying to live with a festering sore and accepting no treatment. Sooner or later, the infection will get out of hand and we'll just end up in bed. Or maybe we'll just skip the putting up with it part and head straight for the bed and lie there moaning so that in the end we accomplish nothing. Neither of these approaches sound particularly appealing or useful, do they? Perhaps we could take Paul's example, though, and just carry on with the mission. But there is a qualifier. There is something that is so essential to perseverance, and it doesn't come from inside us, but it comes from above. Paul gives us the key when he says, This grace was given. Of course, he's speaking of the amazing grace that allowed a very human man to accomplish extraordinary things, unmerited and undeserved favor that came from God, not the grace of any earthly power or authority. This heavenly grace has twofold power for every human, power to save the sinner and power to enable the believer to serve their Lord in the tasks that he has given them. If we seek that grace out, In prayer and in study of God's word, we can do everything he will ever ask of us. But if we try to do that work on our own, then we will fail. There are many things throughout our lives that we might be unsure of, but this is certain, that God certainly has good work for us to do. We've just read in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They are there waiting for us. We cannot know his purpose or the size of the task he has set for us, and often that's a good thing. But he definitely does have a task for us. I don't know if you remember what Jason Birkin said the other day about the mountain of work that he and his wife have ended up doing with the Tala over many, many years. And he said they would have been disheartened and probably never have begun if they had known what was in store for them at the beginning. But the important thing was that they were faithful, and they did begin. And look at what God has accomplished through that faithfulness, and how he has looked after them as they have worked, and he has enabled them to do that work. That's that grace in real action. Now you may think, listening to this, that unless you rush off and convert 10,000 savage heathens, then you won't have accomplished anything of note. But it isn't like that. It is the faithfulness that is important, not the size of the work. It's true that some may convert those savages, but there are others who may just sit quietly in a corner doing small acts of service and yet be great saints because they have poured their heart into the task given to them and worked out their part in God's great plan as living stones in the temple of the church here on earth. So be encouraged. Serve God in whatever way you can and rely on His strength and He will hold you up and keep you safe until it is time to spend eternity with Him. We can see from our text that Paul was given a very great task. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ, He was given a great cause, but he was also given a very great gift to share. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The word he has used for preach is also used elsewhere to describe sharing a glad or joyful message. And by the way, that's the root word for the word we have today, evangelism. Evangelism is a glad or joyful message. If I came to tell you that there is true hope in life, that you aren't the result of a fortunate accident between dissolved minerals and a bolt of lightning in a murky pool of water zillions of years ago, but that you were made for a purpose by a loving God who takes an active interest in every second of your life, who promises you an eternity after death free from every single thing that troubles you in this world, if you will just follow him for the few years of your life here on earth. Would that qualify as a glad or joyful message? Yes! Very yes! Paul certainly thinks so, and I believe he was excited and joyful to have the opportunity to share it. We too have that challenge, and that possibility, and great gift to share because the message Paul preached has not changed from that time until now. We'll talk about that message again in a bit, but for now I want to follow the text. Let's talk about that word unsearchable. In fact the Greek word here almost should be it should be unpronounceable, not unsearchable. It's anexictniastos. Okay? And it literally means not tracked out. There are no roads to that place or in that place so you cannot go there or travel around it. It demonstrates that there is a sufficiency in Christ which cannot be traced out or explored. It is it is wholly incomprehensible. The fullness of the riches in Him cannot be appreciated by humans because they are so deep and so wide and so high and composed of things that are just beyond our understanding. Do you remember that earlier I mentioned that Paul was drawing a picture of the gulf between sinful man and holy God. He started with that very low point, the lowest of lows, sinful man, the least of the least. Here is the high point, the very peak, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And by God's grace, we have a share in that. That's the amazing thing. God has reached out in love across that gap that we could never cross and we do not deserve to cross. And he has drawn us to him and shared his riches with us. Thank you. What can we do but worship and serve our Lord? How do we live with that truth? Day to day we may say that we trust in Christ, but how do we measure his ability to provide? Probably by our own limited experience. And this is a very poor ruler to use on something that's unsearchable because it's just way too short. One of my favourite movie lines of all time comes from Julia Roberts in the film Pretty Woman. She goes into a very upmarket clothing store that, and she's armed with her wealthy boyfriend's plastic card but she's just wearing the wrong kind of clothes. The uh assistant has a look down her nose at this person and suggests that she should shop elsewhere. Of course she's hurt. She goes away, and she does shop somewhere else. Very, very successfully, I can say. And a while later, she comes back to that shop laden with very expensive packages. Big mistake. Huge, she says. We will be making a similar mistake if we forget that Jesus' ability to help comes from a store of unsearchable riches. No matter what the need may be, Christ can reach into his store and provide. No matter where he sends us or what he asks us to do, he can always give us the tools and the ability and then some. Let me read you this quote by John Edie, who is a Presbyterian minister and Bible scholar. The language is a little bit difficult because it was written many years ago, but it is a beautiful description and I encourage you to spend some time looking at this quote in your notes a bit later on, because he does explain things so well. Look at it and puzzle out the language. The riches of Christ are not simply riches of grace, or riches of glory, or riches of inheritance, as some are inclined to restrict them, but that treasury of spiritual blessing which is Christ's, so vast that the comprehension of its limits and the exhaustion of its contents are alike impossible. The riches of Christ are the true wealth of men and nations, and those riches are unsearchable. Even the value of the portion already possessed cannot be told by any symbols of numeration, for such riches can have no adequate exponent or representative. What he's saying there isn't a unit. You can't say it's dollars or centimetres, because there's nothing to describe this. It's just too amazing. Their source was in eternity, and in a love whose fervour and origin are above our ken, and whose, whose duration shall be for ages of ages beyond compute. Their extent is boundless, and the mode in which they have been wrought out reveals a spiritual process whose results astonish and satisfy us, but whose inner springs and movements lie beyond our keenest inspection. And our appropriation of those riches, though it be a matter of consciousness, shrouds itself from us. Scrutiny, for it indicates the presence of the divine spirit in his power, a power exerted upon man beyond resistance but without compulsion, and in its mighty and gracious operation, neither wounding his moral freedom nor impinging on his perfect and undeniable responsibility. Okay what he's talking about there is the way the spirit works on us, that mysterious way in which we still have responsibility, but the power of God works in us in such a way that we cannot resist it. The latest periods of time shall find these riches unimpaired and eternity shall behold the same wealth neither worn by use nor dimmed by age nor yet diminished by the myriads of its happy participants. That store is always there. It can never be worn out. At the end of time it's still going to be there, perfect and unchanged. So far we have been talking about the personal application. What do those riches mean for me? but it would be exceedingly irresponsible for me not to make the reminder that we should, above all, be thinking about what those riches mean for others, specifically the unsaved. This is more so because the context of the verse is exactly this. Paul has been tasked with preaching them to the Gentiles. I have already drawn some other parallels between Paul's human condition and our own. But it is equally true that we also share a common task, laid out for us very clearly in Matthew 28. And I'm sure that it's familiar. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We must take that joyful message of hope and share it with our fellow humans. We have a duty and we have the means and we have a great message. This is what Spurgeon wrote about the riches of Christ. My master has riches beyond the count of arithmetic, the measure of reason, the dream of imagination or the eloquence of words. They are unsearchable. You may look and study and weigh, but Jesus is a greater Saviour than you think Him to be when your thoughts are at the greatest. My Lord is more ready to pardon you than to sin, than you to sin, more able to forgive than you to transgress. My Master is more willing to supply your wants than you are to confess them. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. When you put the crown on his head, you will only crown him with silver when he deserves gold. My master has riches of happiness to bestow upon you now. He can make you to lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. There is no music like the music of his pipe, when he is the shepherd and you are the sheep, and you lie down at his feet. There is no love like his, neither heaven nor earth can match it. To know Christ and to be found in him, oh, this is life. This is joy. This is marrow and fatness. Wine on the leaves, well refined. My master does not treat his servants churlishly. He gives to them as a king giveth to a king. He gives them two heavens. A heaven below in serving him here and a heaven above in delighting him or in him forever. His unsearchable riches will be best known in eternity. He will give you on the way to heaven all you need. Your place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Your bread shall be given to you and your waters shall be sure. But it is there, there, where you shall hear the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast, and shall have a face-to-face view of the glorious and beloved one. The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the tune for the minstrels of earth and the song for the harpers of heaven. Lord, teach us more and more of Jesus and we will tell out the good news to others. Now, I've gone on for some time about these riches. And I'm sure that a few of you will be mentally begging me to land the airplane. But this is very important to all of us. So I wanted to be sure that I had explained everything, that we leave here knowing the power of the Lord that we serve. How we have a share in that power And that the purpose of that sharing is to enable us both to preach the gospel and to do the works that God has prepared for us. It did occur to me that I could finish the sermon here, but that leaves an inconveniently sized chunk of the chapter for later. And it is one that does contain a most amazing statement that we can all treasure. I'm not going to pull the remaining text to pieces because Paul is really just speaking for the most part about what we have already discussed. But just to remind us, let's read from verse 9 again. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to focus on verse 12. It says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This is a truly amazing sentence. One that should hit us with the power of a freight train. Have you read John's account of meeting the Son of Man in the first chapter of the book of Revelation? It reads like this. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now just try to get this picture in your head. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. For any human to come face to face with Jesus at home in the throne room of Almighty God, it would be beyond terrifying. It would be beyond any horror or fear the human mind could conceive of or contemplate. Just consider that comparison. Okay? You've got man who's a puny, created being, bound by the laws of physics, and tethered to one small ball of mud, rendered detestable by the, sin of, the stain of sin, coming face to face with perfect, powerful God, Creator and sustainer of not just that one ball of mud, but a whole universe of glorious blazing suns, unrelenting in his holiness and purity. What could we do but writhe in hopelessness, attempting to hide ourselves and escape his wrath? And yet, but God, but God so loved the world that he sent. And as a consequence, we can face this encounter not as fearful worms, but with boldness. And let me stress, this cannot be arrogance, because the privilege is not of our own doing. But we can go there with boldness. Although Christ did his work on the cross 2,000 years ago, it has a very real and continuing effect in the present for every believer. Paul is telling us that now Jew and Gentile have been gifted the same freedom of speech before God and access and introduction to him through Jesus. That means you and I, if we're believers, we can stand before the King. Do you understand what I mean by standing? We can stand before the King, not fall on our faces. What a gift. And what a God. I pray that through our text today we will all see the immensity of the hope stored for us in heaven, so that no matter what the odds here are on earth, in our daily lives we will strive to serve and honour the King. Let us pray. Holy Lord, thank you for this reminder of who we serve. Thank you for this Reminder of what sustains and supports us. Lord, we become so overwhelmed with our own selves, with our own situation, with all the things that are going on around us day to day that we often forget about these things. Thank you for reminding us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would clearly see our mission, whatever that might be for you, large or small, and Lord, that we would faithfully execute it leaning and relying on you the whole time and looking forward to that time when we can stand before you in the throne room. Oh Lord, thank you so much that you have made that possible for us. Thank you for the great hope that it gives us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, Amen.